While you're doing that, one of the things that I wanted to point out, I, I forgot to mention, and when I close tonight, we'll remember Pastor Smith. I forgot about him as well. But uh, with reference to the court case, one of the things that has come up often in the court case is the arbitrariness of the COVID orders. Uh, we all remember that. Uh, you could go to Walmart, 800 of you, but you couldn't go to church. You could have an AA group meeting in a church, but you couldn't have a church worship service in a church. So there's you know, that running and constant theme of arbitrariness. Well, the specific case that happened last week here in Chilliwack, our, our, our attorney is uh, Paul Jaffe, um, was basically the arbitrariness of Bonnie Henry allowing Jews to worship inside during the time of lockdown. Uh, no one, no other religious group was allowed that. And so basically what Jaffe argued was that we want to see the, the, the papers. I thought like hundreds and thousands of papers or documents generated during the COVID timeframe, you know, the health orders and the various memoranda that goes back and forth from, from Bonnie Henry to whoever. Um, well, the Crown, uh, Crown Council, they sent five attorneys last week up against Paul Jaffe. So they obviously, I mean, it appears that it's obvious that they're hiding something. So they have this hesitancy to release any documents that are, that are relative to the case. To me, it seems like a closed, uh, a sh uh, you know, open and shut case. Of course, it has all along, but hopefully the judge will see it clearly this time around and rule in our favor. So it really is just a, um, an ongoing sort of a battle to try and get any rationale whatsoever for why Bonnie Henry did what Bonnie Henry did. So that's kind of the, the contours of the case. So if you're looking at Leviticus chapter 23, I want to read the chapter and then we'll consider the feasts of the Lord. And that title comes from the last verse, verse 44. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the, the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of the two tents of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits of the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year, without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall, uh, then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord, with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. 
and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Amen. Well, remember the overarching structure of the book of Leviticus. It's primarily focused on what we call ceremonial law. In other words, law regulating the worship and conduct of the children of Israel as the holy people of God separate from the nations around them. The book starts off with the sacrifices, the particular sacrifices that are utilized in the worshiper's approach to God. And then we deal with the priests. The priests mediate the worshiper's approach to God. In other words, the worshiper has to go through that mediation the priest who then offers the sacrifice to the Lord for the worshiper. Several sacrifices, or at least one of them is consumed wholly, but others are, are made to participate in, in terms of eating. So the worshiper and the priest get to partake of some of the meat of those sacrifices. After the giving of the regulations concerning sacrifice and the priesthood, we see it put into practice at the end of chapter 9. The end of chapter 9, you see a positive impact. They offer up the sacrifice, they do it in a uh, in a uh, lawful manner, and then God sends fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice, and the people rejoice with a shout. And then in chapter 10, we see a negative uh, contrast with reference to Nadab and Abihu. They offer up strange fire before the Lord, and then fire comes down from heaven, but instead of consuming the sacrifice, it consumes Nadab and Abihu. They did not operate in a lawful manner as they approached God. And then as we move through the narrative, we start to see 
regulations concerning holiness and unholiness, sacredness and profaneness. And profaneness simply means, in this context, outside of, not sacred, not consecrated unto. And then when we get to the book, uh, the, the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, that's the one day out of the year when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, and there he makes sacrifice for the children of Israel. But then he takes a scapegoat, he lays his hands upon the goat, he confesses the transgressions of Israel, and then he sends that goat out into the wilderness, a wonderful picture of the removal of sin. We call that expiation, the removal of guilt associated with sin. And then from chapter 17 and following, we see what's called the holiness code. And the holiness code is simply regulations for the lives of the Israelites in their day-to-day -day practice. In other words, how they're supposed to be separate from the heathen around them. Things that deal with their diet, things that deal with their clothing, things that deal with their skin, things that deal with their uh, issues that come from their bodies. All these things can render a man or a woman unclean and thus unable to enter into the presence of God. So they had to maintain that ceremonial cleanliness or purity. Now last time in chapters 21 and 22, we considered the conduct of the priests, not in their formal capacity per se, like we have in the early chapters of Leviticus on how they handle sacrifice, but things pertaining to who is qualified to go in to the house of God and present a sacrifice at the altar. Remember that the priests who had some sort of a defect or deformity, some spot or wrinkle or other blemish, they were not able to go and sacrifice. God demanded purity. As well, he didn't cut them off. They did still participate in the food that was allotted to them. But we also saw that animals were to be without defect. In other words, God is a thrice holy God. Those who come to him must be approved. And so God gives those rules there in Leviticus 21 and 22. Now here in chapter 23, we see that Israel was a people that was tied in large part, at least religiously, to the calendar. And so you see these feasts of the Lord indicated here in chapter 23. We're not going to go through every jot and tittle of this particular passage. Some of it is ambiguous, at least in my reading, and I'm going to lean a bit on Wenham tonight with reference to going through the text. But more, more emphasis will be later on in terms of some practical lessons that we can glean from the chapter. So Leviticus 23, the feasts of the Lord, a central part of Israel's life as the covenant people of God when they dwelt in the land. And this is, in fact, an old covenant situation. I'll speak to the issue as to whether or not these things continue into the new covenant. Short answer is no, they do not, because as I said, it's ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled that and thus abrogated these specific things in terms of the, the regulation of God's people. So as we look at the chapter, we see first an emphasis on the weekly Sabbath in verses 1 to 3. We've seen that reiterated already in the book of Leviticus several times. We see that it reflects what we find in Exodus chapter 20, which is moral law. And then again later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'll speak to the distinction between moral and ceremonial in a few minutes. But we see the weekly Sabbath in verses 1 to 3, and then the annual feasts in verses 4 to 44. And essentially this breaks down into two parts. You have first the spring feasts in verses 4 to 22, and then second the fall feasts in verses 23 to 44. So in terms of the calendar, you have these couple that are mentioned here for spring, and then you have others that are mentioned for fall. But let's first look at the weekly Sabbath in verses 1 to 3, and notice first of all the divine authority behind this command. Notice in verse 1. Now, now remember, in the book of Leviticus, it's not a systematic theology. It's not Louis Burkhoff. It's not Herman Bovink. It's not Francis Turretin, where we like categorizing and we like lists and compartments. Okay, this is moral law. This is judicial law. This is ceremonial law. You see a broad sense of that in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, is moral law. Exodus chapters 21 to 23 is judicial law, the application of those moral principles into life in the society of Israel. And then in chapters 25 to 40, with reference to the building of the tabernacle, that's the ceremonial law. So the distinction or the division rather is there, but it's not always as clear cut. So we'll see moral law sprinkled throughout sections that deal with ceremonial law. We've seen that up to this point already in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 23 is no different. So the Sabbath, as I've mentioned several times in the past, has got both a moral aspect and a ceremonial aspect. 
So moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, remember or observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The moral principle there is one day out of seven, the creature must worship his God. One day out of seven, the creature must worship his God, his creator. The ceremonial aspect is which day that occurs on. In the Old Covenant, it was Saturday. In the New Covenant, it is Sunday. So there is a ceremonial aspect or a positive law aspect that affects the change of the day. But the moral principle abides. The reality is, is that God's people are called, even in this New Covenant setting, we'll speak to this more later, they are bound by God to observe Sunday as the Christian Sabbath or as the Lord's Day for the worship of the living and true God. So looking at chapter 23, notice in verses 1 and 2, you see the divine authority. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, so this wasn't Moses, this wasn't a band of, you know, extra religious or extra pious people within the body politic that said, we, you know, we, we, we really should set apart a day in order to worship God. No, this comes with divine authority, just as ceremonial and moral and judicial law does come. But here it's reiterated. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. General, overarching, specific thesis statement concerning the rest of the chapter. And then notice the specific emphasis on the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath in verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now that, as I said, reflects Exodus chapter 20 at verses 8 to 11. And then in the second giving of the law in the book of Deuteronomy to the second generation, remember the wilderness generation dies in the wilderness for their grumbling and their rebellion against God. So on the plains of Moab, as they're poised to go into the promised land, God through Moses gives a series of exhortations. He reiterates the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, you see that same emphasis on the fourth commandment. Now, in terms of that specific commandment, there is a positive aspect. So in Exodus, they are commanded to remember the day, Exodus 20 and verse 8. And then in Deuteronomy 20 at verse 12, they're told to observe the day. The Israelites in Exodus 20 at verse 12 are told to remember something, which indicates that it had already been present. It had already been extant. There was already something in operation that God reminds them of or calls them uh, calls upon them not to forget. You are to remember the Sabbath day. It had already been in place because God ordained it in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we see uh, Cain and Abel uh, go at the end of the days, that's the end of the days of the week, to present their sacrifices before God. They had received that through God or by God through Adam. Adam knew that and Adam passed that on to a uh, Cain and Abel. So they, at the end of days, come and present their sacrifice to God. Do, uh, Exodus chapter 16, when they're gathering manna, God tells them to collect the double portion on Friday so that they can observe the Sabbath on Saturday, so that they can rest, do no regular work on that day, so that you can rest in the Lord and sanctify the Lord. So they're told to remember what had already been in place, and the Israelites were to observe that which had already been in place. And the reason they were to remember the day, or the specific focus, was to keep it holy. They were to keep it holy. The activity of God recorded in Genesis 2-3 was the paradigm for Israel. In Genesis 2, we find God having created in the space of six days all things out of nothing by the word of his power and all very good. On that seventh day, he rested. There was a, a rest of complacency, a rest of, of approval. And we read there in chapter 2 in verse 3 in the book of Genesis, then God blessed the sab uh, seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. That, mean, that does not mean he is a, uh, the deistical God that made the world and then sort of forgets all about it. Rather, it means that he rested from that work of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. He built the world. He did all that he intended to do, and now he rests, he's enthroned, uh, and he looks upon approvingly his creation. G.K. Beale makes this observation with reference to Genesis 2 and verse 3. In the context of arguing uh, from that passage that this includes a mandate to humans, 
This is where Adam would have learned Sabbath-keeping from God Most High. Beale says the Hebrew word for bless is normally restricted to living beings in the Old Testament and typically does not apply to something being blessed or sanctified only for God's sake. Accordingly, Genesis 2-3 appears to be directed to humanity as a creational ordinance to regard the seventh day of each week to be blessed and set apart by God creation ordinances. In other words, what God does in the creation account, the creature is supposed to observe and glean from that and learn from that. We see labor emphasized by God with reference to, to Adam. We see marriage as a creation ordinance. We see as well Sabbath keeping as a creation ordinance. Now, when it comes to Sabbath dispute in the book of Mark, chapter 2 specifically, when Jesus is going head to head with the Pharisees, he speaks about the Sabbath being made for man and not man made for the Sabbath. And then Jesus asserts his lordship and authority over the Sabbath. And Ryle comments there. He says, God gave it for Adam in paradise. He didn't give it initially to the Jews at Sinai. The, the Sabbath command predates Sinai. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2. He says, God gave it for Adam in paradise and renewed it to Israel on Mount Sinai. It was made for all mankind, not for the Jew only, but for the whole family of Adam. So the creature is to remember and observe that day in religious worship unto God. So that's the positive aspect. In terms of the prohibition, you're to cease from your regular labor. That's contained there in Exodus 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. There is a prohibition against regular work. You see that sprinkled, out, uh, sprinkled upon these feasts of the Lord as well. No customary work. In other words, there's to be a cessation from labor for that particular day to give yourself holy to the glory of God. On these feasts, the same sort of thing obtained. They were to cease from their regular stuff and they were to enter into the presence of God and enjoy communion and union, union with Him. And I think we glean from this that God takes our rest seriously. God commands His people to rest. God gives us the gift of Sabbath for that particular reason. We're not machines. We're not tractors. We're not those who can continue unabated. God speaks with grace to His people and gives the gift of Sabbath to them for their rest and for His glory. So there was to be no regular work, and the scope of the command was uh, comprehensive. The covenant family, even the beasts of burden, were to be given that day off. And then in terms of implications, we have a cessation from regular employment. But the fourth commandment, we need to remember, not only enjoins Sabbath keeping, but it does enjoin good hard work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. In other words, God doesn't command only rest. He doesn't command that you just lay on your couch all the time or that you only engage in holy duties. No, going out to work is a very blessed and wonderful pursuit that God gives to man. But as well, we need to see that there is this pursuit of holy things. If you turn to the prophet Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah chapter 15, Isaiah 56 and 58 speak to the issue of the weekly Sabbath, and the context is, is, is very appropriate to a New Covenant setting because it speaks concerning the Messianic reign. It's looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it tells us those things that will occur in that New Covenant era. Chapter 56 speaks about the eunuchs having been excluded from the presence of God. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 21 last Wednesday night. Well, in Acts chapter 8, we see the Ethiopian eunuch brought in to full communion and union with God Most High. So 56 deals with that. It deals with Sabbath. But then here in chapter 58, God gives what is the underlying sort of idea relative to Sabbath keeping. Now in this new covenant era, I know that questions come up. Can I go to Tim Hortons on Sunday? Can I go do my shopping at Superstore on Sunday? I think that if you get the doctrine down, I'm leaning on Dabney here. Dabney says if you get the doctrine down, then the practice kind of works itself out. There's not, you know, a strict set of rules in Romans 17, which there is no Romans 17. These things you can and cannot do. But the spirit of the Sabbath is here in Isaiah 58 at verses 13 and 14. Notice, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, 
Notice your pleasure contrasted with uh, a delight in God. He's not saying your pleasure is necessarily wrong. He's not condemning your time with your wife. He's not condemning your, your playing ball with your children. He's not condemning that. But he's saying there should be a cessation of those regular sorts of things. I'm not saying don't play ball with your child on Sunday. You can't throw the Nerf ball to your kid. That, that, that wasn't the implication. The idea is, is that he's not after you to have this dour, sour, you know, lemon-looking, you know, I just ate a lemon, I'm going to be sad and pathetic all day on a Sunday. That's not the spirit of Sabbath-keeping. Notice, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then back to our particular text, with reference to the fourth commandment, we see the positive aspect, remember or observe, and or observe, and then the prohibition, a cessation from labor, and then the rationale. What's the reason God gives for Sabbath keeping in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? Well, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, it's the doctrine of creation. Again, it points us right back to Genesis chapter 2. In other words, for in six days the Lord your God made the earth and all things in it. And on the seventh day he rested. That's the rationale for the creature to observe this one day in seven. God made the world and rested. You occupy space in his world. You ought to do likewise and rest. The second reason is in the book of Deuteronomy and it's redemption. Because God has redeemed you out of the house of bondage, or out of the house of Egypt and bondage, you now have this blessed privilege of life in the land and rest in your God. So again, we need to get away from this idea that Sabbath keeping, for instance, is this, this, this imposition that is bad and harsh and vicious on people. And then notice, with reference, uh, moving on now to the annual feasts in verses 4 to 44. Again, you've got a bit of a general statement there in verse 44 announcing the, the particular theme. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Again, this is God. This isn't Moses. This isn't a band of men that are pious in Israel. And they say, you know what? We should really have these fall feasts. We should really have these spring feasts. It'd be a good thing for us to engage in and to show our appreciation to God the Lord. No, God the Lord regulates that. In fact, I would argue that the fourth day and the creation of light bearers for seasons has to do with Israel's calendar, has to do with the fact that they were a body of people covenanted to God that were going to engage in worship according to a particular plan and purpose. So that's the declaration. I'm going to quote Wenham now concerning the specific emphasis. He says, the recurring refrains in this chapter about holy conventions, our translation has convocation, and rest days shows that this chapter is dealing with how the laity, the non-priests, should celebrate these holy days. This is a calendar for laymen not priests. A comparison with Numbers 28 and 29 confirms this. Numbers 28 and 29 specifies in detail which animals are to be offered on each day. By contrast, this chapter is usually content with a brief reference to food offerings, a phrase which covers all sacrifices except the purification offering. It was the priest's task to know what kind of sacrifice must be offered on which occasion. It was enough for the layman to remember that he had to attend the holy convention, at which sacrifices at which sacrifices would be offered on his behalf and to observe these extra rest days. <clears throat> so that's the focus here. It's not instruction to the priests on how to conduct this. It is rather revelation to the children of Israel on how they were to observe this. So the priests would be tasked with offering up the sacrifices. The worshiper would be tasked with being present and then knowing what was going on in terms of what the priest's conduct was. Now, in terms of the nature of the feast, holy convocation is used often or holy conventions. Is that what the NIV has? Conventions or convocations? Uh, look at verse, I'm sorry here. Verse 2. It has conventions? Okay, yeah. It, the, this comes up in verses 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 21, 24, 27, 35, 36, 37. And there will be a quiz on that when we end our time tonight. Uh, worship services, the time that the children of Israel come out and they gather together corporately. Now, there's this emphasis in the Bible on corporate worship. 
Not suggesting that you can't read your Bible and be blessed in your, in your private time. You should and can. Not saying you can't be blessed at the family altar when the dad or mom opens the scriptures and reads that to the children. Not saying that at all. But in Psalm 87, we see that Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Doesn't mean he hates the dwelling places of Jacob. He just delights when the people of God come together as the people of God corporately to worship him and to praise him. And so this heavy emphasis on these holy convocations simply means worship services in Israel's calendar. <clears throat> Notice as well the perpetuity of the feast. You see this uh, emphasis on forever in verse 14b, verse 21b, and verse 41b. So naturally, persons read these verses and say, well, we've got to keep the Feast of Weeks because we're still part of forever here. We've got to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because we're still part of forever here. I would suggest that forever is conditioned by the covenant that it is in. So the Old Covenant governs that use of forever. So in other words, God says, as long as the Old Covenant is extant, you must observe these feasts. As long as the Old Covenant is in play, you must be obedient with reference to these feasts. Well, we know that Jesus has come. The Old Covenant is now obsolete, not because it was bad, but because it had functioned in the, per in the manner that God had intended. Christ comes, he ushers in the New Covenant. So based on that reality and several other concerns, there is no abiding uh, uh, emphasis on the children of God in the New Covenant to keep the Feast of Weeks, to keep the Passover, to keep the, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is an Old Covenant people observant. So the forever there is conditioned or governed by the covenant. Now, with reference to the spring feasts, you see that in verses 5 to 22. And again, we're not going to go through every jot and detail here. But first you have the Passover and unleavened bread. These go together. Now, Wenham extends verses four, uh, from verse 4 all the way to verse 14, where if you have the New King James, right above verse 9, you see the translators put in the Feast of First Fruits. This is the part, it's a bit ambiguous for me. I didn't have enough time today to go through and, and comb through all the, the, the commentaries, so I'm just going to lump it in as he does here, Passover and unleavened bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is sometimes just called that, but it always includes Passover. It occurred or it was celebrated in the month of Abib, which was called Nisan after the exile. So that'd be about March or April in our calendar. It's also spoken to in detail in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. Remember Exodus chapter 12 is the specific instructions for the Passover. The children of Israel were to kill their animal. They were to splash the lamb above their, their door so that the angel of death could pass over and then kill the Egyptians and not the children of Israel. So Passover loomed large in Israel's history. And with reference to the reason for the feast, it is because uh, uh, it, it celebrates the, the redemption from their bondage in Egypt. So Deuteronomy 16 also deals with the feasts, as does Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, not so much. Deuteronomy 16, uh, a bit more fuller. So I'm going to uh, lean on Deuteronomy uh, 16 a little bit as well. So the reason for the feast was specifically stated in Deuteronomy 16, for in it you came out of Egypt. So it was the great redemptive act of God in the Old Covenant, when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Remember, the book of Genesis ends on a high note. Joseph is, is exalted. He's elevated. He's basically second in charge over Egypt. Well, then he dies. And then the new Pharaoh doesn't know, didn't know the history of Joseph, and he sees all these Hebrews as a wonderful slave force, and he puts them into slavery. The children of Israel about Exodus 2.25 cry out because of the bondage that they find themselves in. They're in pain. They're suffering. It's not necessarily God. We want to repent for any sins that we may have committed. They're just hurting. So they cry out to God. God hears, and then he calls uh, Moses to be that deliverer, to be that instrument by which the children of Israel will be delivered. Now, we know how the narrative goes. We know that it's quite dramatic. We know that it's quite awesome, the way that God plagues the children, or, or the, the, the Egyptians, and he delivers the children of Israel through the Red Sea, and it's a great and triumphant victory on the part of God for his people. So the Passover remembers that, or the Passover recollects that, and that's the emphasis here. And with reference 
to sacrifice in Deuteronomy 16, 15, it says, none shall appear before me empty. In other words, you're supposed to bring a sacrifice. You're supposed to bring an offering. And I'll argue later that all of these feasts have a specific emphasis on that reality. The idea being that God's given you everything. God's given you life. God's given you food. God's given you water. God's given you everything, jobs. So it is right and, and honorable for the child of God to bring sacrifice to the Lord. Now, secondly, you have the Feast of Weeks in verses 15 to 22. It's referred to as the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23, verse 16. Literally, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, here in verses 15 and 16 is where the word Pentecost comes from. This is also referred to as the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50th. And when you do the math, you will see count 50 days, Pentecost, to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So this is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. This is when in Acts chapter 2, the children, uh, uh, the Israelites were all gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And that was a unique time for, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All nations were gathered together there. The Spirit comes in power and, and fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And then the church receives that endowment or that blessing of the Spirit to engage in the, the task of missionary enterprise. So the Feast of Weeks was celebrated in the month of Sivan, which was May or June on our calendar. And it was a time to remember God's blessing and God's provision. In Deuteronomy 16.10, it says, Which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And the feast was a time to remember their bondage in Egypt and redemption by God. So that's a recurring theme as you go through these feast days. God tells them to remember that redemptive act. Now, it's not the exact same, but there's certainly a parallel with reference to the supper. What do we do when we come to the supper? It's not a reward for our good, our good behavior. It's not a, you know, a special token where God says, you know, I, I'm really pleased with you all, so go ahead and take this bread and drink this cup. It's a time to remember. Remember what? Do this in remembrance of me, the great redemptive act of God in that new covenant setting. We have this Lord's Supper, that sacrament, to be that reminder for us. And then as well, if you look specifically at our text here in 23:22, it was a time to express charity for the poor. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So built into the civil polity in Old Covenant Israel was charity for the poor. It didn't come in the form of a welfare check. It didn't come on a, to a guy that laid on his couch and watched Oprah all day and, you know, drank orange soda. It came for those, even though they were poor, they went out and they labored. They went out and collected that which was left by those who had plenty. So it was a time to express charity for other children of God in the covenant community that were poor. And then that brings us to the fall feasts in verses 23 to 24. I'm sorry, 23 to 44. We've got the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 to 25. A very brief passage. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, I haven't done the math, but I, I, I believe that there were Sabbaths that would have occurred on non-Saturday. So you had the weekly Saturday Sabbath, but then you had occasional Sabbaths. I think it's those occasional Sabbaths that Paul refers to in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, a passage that people believe mitigates against Sabbath observance. Somebody come in. Him throw down. I just thought maybe. <laughs> so there were occasional Sabbaths that were on Israel's calendar as well. And then the next one is the Day of Atonement in verses 26 to 32. Now the Day of Atonement is covered at length in Leviticus chapter 16. And in Levit Levit uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 16 at verse 29, you have the same time reference as verse 27. Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. These three feasts, the, uh, these two and the next one, all occur in the seventh month, according to verses 24, 27, and 34. 
So the seventh month was a busy month in terms of feasts to the Lord with reference to Old Covenant Israel. And then you have finally the Feast of Tabernacles in verses 33 to 43. It's also referred to as the Feast of Ingathering in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. It was celebrated in the month Tishri, the seventh month. So that would be September, October on our calendar. And the feast was a time of celebration at the later harvest. Everything good? Okay. And then the feast was also a time when the children of Israel dwelt in booths. That's what a fe the, the feast of tabernacle. Tabernacle simply means dwelling place. So a booth, a tent, a dwelling place, whatever, however the, the translation you have translates it. The idea is, and it's found there specifically at the bottom. Notice in uh, specifically verse 40, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Notice the specific purpose here that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the specific emphasis again is to recall that time when they were delivered from Egypt, Egypt and they dwelt in these temporary dwellings, tents, booths, uh, booths uh, uh, or tabernacles in the wilderness. Meredith Klein says the name tabernacles reflects the custom of dwelling in booths during the festival which served as a memorial of life in the wilderness. So not only were they redeemed by God, they were sustained by God in the wilderness. The children of Israel had a wrong reading, the Old Covenant apostate or non-believers in, in Old Covenant Israel had a wrong reading on the, on the wilderness. They looked at it as a time of, uh, of curse. They looked at it with scorn. God tells them, as a father carried his son, so I carried you. It was God's sustaining and God's influence and God's blessing upon them in the midst of the wilderness. Is it somebody in particular? It's literally somebody Really? Is it a girl? Okay, because there was a girl hanging out here earlier today. Like we should go eject them from the sanctuary, honestly. <laughs> Give them the heave ho. What'd you say? I think we probably got enough guys out there. Yeah. What's that? Oh, Isaac's worried about his bike. Gotcha. Well, the guy could take it and ride off. Not a bad concern. All right, so that's basically the chapter. I just have a couple of thoughts in terms of application. The first is the purpose for the feasts. The purpose for the feast. That comes from the passage. It comes from Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, and just some other passages in, in, in the Old Covenant here. First, to remind the covenant community of their history. Just like our history is rehearsed for us when we take this bread and eat, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup. We remember our history. Do this in remembrance of me. So these feasts would help the children of Israel not forget from whence they came and the position that God had blessed them with. Secondly, it was to promote joy in the covenant community. Look specifically at chapter 23 and verse 40. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Again, the idea here is not pain, torture, punishment, and misery. It's joy in the presence of God Most High. It's, it's uh, delight in remembering what God had done in terms of redemption. So to remind the covenant community of their history. Second, to promote joy in the covenant community. Third, to encourage community participation in the covenant community. Turn to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, specifically at verses 11 and 14, you'll see that everybody was to participate. It wasn't simply the heads of the household. It wasn't simply the men that were to respond. Now, there were instances where just men went to the city of Jerusalem, but in these feasts, all the people were to participate. Notice in chapter 16 at verse 11. 
You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So it was to be a time of joy, and it was to be a time of joy for the entirety of the family. And that's rehearsed again in verse 14. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. So it was a time to encourage community participation in the covenant community. Fourth, it was to promote reciprocity within the covenant community. Reciprocity means I give and I take. You give and you take. Specifically, reciprocity to the poor. We see that there in chapter 23 at verse 22. When you go and you reap, leave some for the poor in Israel so that they may enjoy the bounty of the land. But then as well, a reciprocity with reference to God, the offering of sacrifice to God. Notice specifically at verses 37 and 38. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. God again is kind in his provision. God again is kind in his goodness to his people, and God gives us things richly to enjoy. But it is duty, but privilege as well for us to return a portion to God in a hearty acknowledgement that he has blessed us. The apostle indicates in, this, in our new covenant setting that God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you grudgingly offering up uh, money or ta time or talents or whatever it might be in terms of his service. No, he calls us to cheerfulness in this. God blessed us. God gave us greatly. We are to return in kind things to him. Fifth, as well, the purpose for the feast, to protect the covenant community from idolatry. To protect the covenant community from idolatry. Notice again in verse 44. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Lord there is capitalized. That means Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the covenant people. Craigie says, the Passover was a celebration of freedom, but at the same time it was a, re a reminder that freedom from Egypt and worldly dominion had been exchanged almost immediately for a new commitment. The new commitment was made evident in, their, in that their celebration was made by the Israelites uh, to the covenant, or rather as the covenant people of God. So in other words, these feasts, the weekly Sabbath, was a deterrent to the idolatry that infects the people of God. My little children or little children, I write the, or, or keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5, 21. Church attendance, observance of the sacrament, those things are necessary to guard our minds and hearts and to keep us from straying from the God that we love. And then sixth, it was to promote obedience in the covenant people. Freedom from slavery in Egypt meant joyful obedience to God their Savior. Notice the stipulation specifically in verses 29 and 30. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Sanctions are attached in order to promote this obedience, not just the only reason, but one of the reasons these stipulations are added is to promote obedience in the covenant people. And then finally, in terms of the purpose for the feast, to provide rest for the covenant people. Again, God is good. He gives us rest. God's not at war with us in our nature. He made us as creatures. We need to eat, we need to exercise, we need to rest. And God sees that and God provides for that. So no customary work. We see it in verse 8, 21, 25, 27, 28, 32, 35, and 36. So in Israel's calendar, you had time off from your customary work to be spent in the presence of God, in the presence of others, to do good to others, and to enjoy the bounty that God had provided. So the purpose of the uh, for the feast, I'm sure there's other things that could be said. Secondly, I just want to speak quickly to the perpetuity of the feasts. As I said, the feasts are categorized as ceremonial law. Moral law, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 is perpetual. It's binding on all men everywhere. It's transcovenantal. That means it doesn't matter what covenant you find yourself in, it's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to get, you know, engage in idolatry. It's always wrong to commit adultery. It's always wrong to do what God says in those Ten Commandments. So moral law is binding upon the New Covenant people, Old Covenant people, whoever. 
But with reference to ceremonial law, it was given specifically to the children of Israel for purposes. Our confession, I think, uh, summarizes this well. It says, besides this law, after having commented on moral law, commonly called moral, should have just read that, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws. Now, here's what ceremonial laws do. Here's what they did. Here's how they function. Containing several typical ordinances. Remember, a type is something that happens in the past and points forward to something in the future. So in the Old Testament, you have types. They could be people. They could be events. They could be buildings. They could be certain things that had typical significance of something that would be the anti-type that would come in the stead of, that would fulfill that type. So that's what ty uh, uh, typical ordinances mean. So containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly, partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who is furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So when it comes to these feast days, as I said, the Old Covenant was the forever. When the Old Covenant is rendered obsolete by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the inauguration and institution of the New Covenant, those feasts that were attached to Old Covenant worship are no longer binding upon us. Just like Old Covenant sacrifices, just like temple worship, just like a priesthood. Those things unique to Israel's worship, those were uh, bound up with old covenant, uh, old covenant ceremonial laws. So when we come to the new covenant, it's the new covenant that's supposed to inform and instruct us when it comes to worship in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't co-opt old covenant elements and bring them in to new covenant uh, situations. That's a, that's a big problem. You can't do that. That's, that's not right. And so with reference to the feast, their perpetuity was governed by the covenant. So the abrogation of the old covenant means the abrogation of the ceremonial law of the old covenant. So therefore, no feasts for us today. And then finally, the I don't mean no feasts. We can feast. God's good. But no feasts commanded on our calendar with reference to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, the place of the weekly Sabbath. I mentioned earlier the Sabbath is both moral and ceremonial. So the principle, one day out of seven, the creature must worship the creator. That is binding. That's binding upon all men at all times. If we try to jettison that, we have to argue as to how one of the Ten Commandments is still no longer binding on us today. That, that's a fool's errand. That's a very difficult thing to do. I know some have tried. I know there's an ethic that says or a practice that says, well, if it's not repeated in the New Testament, then it's no longer binding. The Reformed people say, no, if it's not rescinded in the New Testament, then it's still binding. You'll find no command in the New Covenant to forbid bestiality. And yet we all prohibit that based on Old Covenant precept. So we need to make sure that we're arguing and, and thinking through these things rationally. So the Sabbath is both moral and ceremonial. The ceremonial aspect deals specifically with the day upon which we worship and the worship that is conducted on that day. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have incense. We don't have all those things. As well, the perpetuity of the Sabbath is grounded in the moral law. It's grounded in the moral law of God. So it's binding upon us in this day. So the new covenant upholds the Sabbath, not the old covenant feasts. The new covenant upholds the Sabbath, but not the old covenant feasts. And by Sabbath, I mean weekly Sabbath. William, uh, William Ames made the observation, because oftentimes, not often, but outside of a Reformed community, people hear this and they think legalism. People hear this and they think Judaizing. People hear this and they think, oh, you're taking us back to the Old Covenant. No, that's not it at all. The Ten Commandments are binding. That's the argument. The Fourth Commandment is part of a unit. If you get rid of the Fourth, you've got to have some good rationale as to why you get rid of the Fourth. I've got arguments for the three passages in the New Covenant that seem to mitigate against Sabbath keeping. Uh, Romans 14, uh, Galatians chapter 4, and Colossians 2. Those are passages that don't speak to weekly Sabbath keeping. But we have the firm word of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it, confirm it, to strengthen it, to heighten it in some sense, at least relative to our confession. So when Ames says to those who say this is legalism, this is Judaizing. 
Uh, he says, Christian liberty is not at all diminished in this conception, as some seem to feel without cause. For it is not liberty but non-Christian license, which results if any think themselves free from the observance of any commandments of the Decalogue or the institutions of Christ. Experience also teaches that license and the neglect of holy things more and more prevail when due respect is not given to the Lord's day. He's right. The more that a people disregard this principle of, of sanctification, Jesus prayed, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. If we say, well, the fourth commandment really isn't for us today, when we jettison that, it does have a practical impact upon the one who jettisons it. And Voss makes the interesting observation with reference to the Sabbath. He says, it has faithfully accompanied the people of God on their march through the ages. I love that. It has faithfully accompanied the people of God on their march through the ages. And then the last thing I want to mention is with reference to these feasts of the Lord, uh, I want to mention just a real practical thing. The Free Grace Baptist Church never had an opportunity to do this near, so near Christmas. Does not have special services during the calendar year because of the regulative principle of worship. Now, it hasn't happened, well, maybe it does a little bit here and there, but several years ago, I used to get a lot of questions. Why don't you have a Christmas service on a Thursday if Christmas is on Thursday? Why don't you have a Christmas service on Tuesday if Christmas is on Tuesday? Why don't you guys have a service on Ascension Thursday? Why don't you guys have a, you know, a, a service we do on Easter Sunday, but for a different reason? Why don't you have a service on this day? Because of the regulative principle of worship. The regular principle of worship means that we go based on what covenant we are in and listen to the covenant head command us on how we're supposed to worship. It's just that simple. Now, we're, as I said, I don't get as many questions now. We're just looked at as the weird church in town that doesn't have a Christmas service on Thursday if Christmas is on Thursday. Turretin makes this observation in his chapter on the law of God with reference to festivals festivals, things that the church imposes on the people of God in the New Covenant. Does the church have the right to impose things on the people of God in the New Covenant? Yes, they do if it's commanded by God. If it's not commanded by God, no, they do not. So that's basically the argument. The regular principle of worship says we're supposed to do nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else than what God demands in worship. And again, we don't go to the old covenant to ask, how do we worship God? We go to the new covenant when it comes to how do we worship God. So he asks the question, whether it belongs to the faith in the New Testament that besides the Lord's Day, there are other festival days properly so called whose celebration is necessary per se and by reason of mystery, not by reason of order or ecclesiastical polity only. He says, we deny against the papists. Notice who's in his crosshairs. It's the papists. It's the papists who added to the calendar. It's the papists who added these days. These I called them when I was a kid in the, in the papist church. We called them holy days of obligation. You were obligated to observe that particular day. Why? Because Jesus commanded it? No, because the Pope commanded it. Because councils had commanded it. Because tradition had commanded it and upheld it. So he, he gives several reasons as to why we deny this. And then he says this. It is one thing to make mention of the conception, nativity, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ on certain days in discourses to the people, and thus to embrace, embrace the opportunity of exhorting, consoling, instructing Christians to edification, piety, patience, and holiness. It is another, however, to make and by established law to impose necessarily upon Christians festivals sacred to God and the saints, to constitute these a part of religion and divine worship as more holy than other days. The former, mentioning the nativity, mentioning the, the incarnation. And I, this is our practice. We don't have a special Christmas service, but it's usually in the minds of everybody, so it seems, you know, uh, wise or prudent to preach sermons on the Incarnation. It's a good time of the year to do that, but it's not a holy day of obligation that we set apart and bind the people of God's consciences to. You better show up for church on a Thursday if Christmas is on a Thursday. He goes on to, or he says, the former can sometimes be employed with advantage according to the circumstances of time, place, persons, and things. And then he says, parenthetically, provided, uh, provided abuse, superstition, and idolatry are absent, as was not rarely done in the primitive church. 
He says, but the latter, making laws, making impositions upon the people of God in their consciences in terms of observing holy days. He says, the latter is not lawful, both because it belongs to God alone and not to men, to prescribe what belongs to divine worship, and because religious worship is not to be paid to any creatures but to God alone. I think that's a great answer. I think our confession as well summarizes it well. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So generally speaking, light of nature teaches us there is a God, we are his creatures, we should worship him. But that's not all. We are not then left to ourselves to divine how we're supposed to worship this God. We look to the book of God to give us commandment from God on how to worship God. In the old covenant, it was tabernacle, temple. It was priesthood, it was sacrifice. It was incense, it was instruments. It was a whole host of things. In the new covenant, we pray the word, we preach the word, we read the word, we sing the word, and we see the word. That's the emphasis in new covenant worship. When it comes to the appointed time, it's on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, which is perpetual. It is to be observed even to the end of the age. That's why we don't have Christmas services on a Thursday, if Christmas is on a Thursday. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section in Leviticus 23 and the emphasis that we find here in terms of the worship of God by the people of God in a manner appointed by you. We thank you for the blessings that we have in the new covenant. We thank you for our church. We thank you for all the churches of Christ. We thank you that your people are scattered throughout the earth and that each and every Lord's Day they gather together corporately to bring glory and praise unto our great God. I pray that you would go with us now, that you would watch over us in the remainder of this week, and we pray that you would be glorified in our private lives and our family lives and, and with reference to our church and in society as well. And we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord,